Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wharton Tech Talks. I'm Spandana. And I'm Javier Torres. And we're the co-hosts for Wharton Tech Talks. Today, we have Sam Allen, who is currently the Executive Vice President and Global Chief Operating Officer for Tableau at Salesforce. He is in his eighth year at Salesforce with previous roles as Executive VP and COO for Salesforce.org, a Senior Vice President and COO of Global Marketing and VP of Corporate Development and Head of M&A Integration. Sam was a commissioned officer in the U.S. Marines, where he was personally decorated multiple times and achieved the rank of major. He has an MBA from the Wharton School of Business and also sits on the board of Habitat for Humanity Greater San Francisco and is an advisor to Detroit Downtown Boxing Gym. Hi, Sam. Great having you on the podcast. Where are you calling us from? Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. I am currently in my home office in Redwood City, California, just south of San Francisco. Great. And, you know, for our listeners, we already introduced you, but in your own words, could you tell us more about your career trajectory? Yeah, so happy to. I don't usually like talking about myself, so I'll try and keep it brief. You mentioned my career at Salesforce. I've actually been here nine years. I'm in my ninth year at the company. You talked about the roles there. Prior to this, I was five years as CEO of my own company, which I shouldn't say my own company, a company I co-founded with two of my Wharton classmates called Scan Cafe, a venture-backed startup in the consumer digital media space. Prior to that, I was a little over five years at Cisco Systems, and I got to Cisco through an acquisition. So I have been acquired before, so I've sat on both sides of that. That transaction environment, so I know what it's like to be acquired and to do the acquiring. And then I got to Cisco through that acquisition of a startup called Serent, which is a very successful company. And I was just a frontline manager there. I wasn't on the executive team or anything. Prior to that, I was at a company called Northern Telecom. I was only there for about two years. It's now bankrupt. When I joined it, it was one of the top companies in the world, but it was very poorly led. So it didn't take me long to figure that out. So I was only there for about 20 months. And then prior to that, I was in the Marine Corps for about a decade. So that's how I spent from my 18th to my 29th birthday. I was in the Marine Corps. During that time, I was lucky enough to get admitted to school and go get my undergraduate degree at the University of Missouri. That's great. And it's great to hear all the things that you did prior to coming to Salesforce. But even within Salesforce, you've held such diverse roles. What was that journey like once you joined Salesforce? Yeah, I'd love to tell people that I had a plan, but I don't. <laughs> I don't plan. Get up in the morning and just deliver the best work that I can each and every day and try and be a good leader for people. So when I joined Salesforce, I actually originally was very hesitant to do so. It had already been a public company. To me, it was kind of big. It was 15,000 people almost. And the person I ended up working for asked me what my hesitation was. And I said, well, I don't want to be a long-term M&A guy. I did M&A when I was at Cisco. I was going to do it here at Salesforce. It's a phenomenal job. It's just not something I wanted to do long-term. I'm what I consider an operator and a general business manager. And he said, if you come here and do well, then a few years, well, you know, this is a growing company. There'll be plenty of opportunity. So what I found was about three years into that job, it felt like it was time to find something else to do. And it certainly was a very fast, still is a growing company. And there were a lot of different things for me to go do. What was interesting was we had a gentleman named Keith Block, who was our COO of the company at the time. Then he became co-CEO for a few years. And he approached me and said, hey, I would really like you to take this opportunity to look at our marketing organization. It's a bit fractured right now. It's not performing like we want it to. And it's about a billion dollars of spend. And I'm not sure how it's managed. So what I really want is someone to have a general manager type approach to marketing and just help us kind of figure that out. 
And I think that you'd be good for that. So you should think about it. And it doesn't matter how long you leave after you've left the Marine Corps. That's kind of still how my brain works. And when someone who's a lot more senior to you says, hey, you should think about doing something, I kind of take that as a, okay, that's what I'm going to go do. <laughs> Within 48 hours, I was in that job. Wow. It turned out to be a phenomenal job and marketing organization at Salesforce is fantastic. And three years later, I came out of that believing I could have gotten to have been a CMO at a, you know, a mid-sized company, no problem. It was just a fantastic opportunity. But after about three years in that, it was the same type of thing. I was speaking with one of our senior executives who asked me, just literally ran into him in the hallway and he said, what are you thinking about doing next? And I said, I don't really have any plans. I like what I'm doing. Got a great CMO who I work for. She was an amazing leader and a great, amazing marketer. Her name's Stephanie Buscemi. And, you know, I'm not really thinking about it. And he said, well, you know, we acquired our Salesforce.org, which was the foundation for Salesforce, but we acquired it and brought it in. And it's also not performing like we'd like it to. You did such a great job in marketing. Would you mind jumping in and helping with this? And Salesforce.org is so important to the culture of Salesforce. I consider myself a servant leader. I believe in giving back. You know, I do a lot of pro bono work. One of the Salesforce mantras that comes from Mark Benioff, our founder, is the business of business is changing the world and business is the best platform for change. And I deeply believe that. And so I thought, well, here we are, another opportunity where a senior executive is asking me to step into a role and it's a role that's really important. So I jumped into that. And that's how I got there. And then very bluntly, I was only there for 18 months because we kind of got it where we needed it to be. And actually, this is an interesting side story. When I was asked to take this role, I was asked what my hesitation was. And I said, well, if I'm successful in this job, I'm working myself out of a job. <laughs> and the response was, well, have faith that we'll make sure that there's something here for you to do. So everything takes risk, right? And so there is risk in that decision and things change so fast, especially in the technology world that you know you really are going on a limb sometime, even with someone with my background and tenure, you know, everything has risk associated with it. And unfortunately, at the age I'm getting to be, your risk profile changes quite a bit. So anyway, 18 months later, I kind of got to the point where we had deeply integrated the .org operating unit and they came to me and talked to me about a role at either Realsoft or Tableau, two of our largest acquisitions. And Tableau was very interesting. They're both interesting. But Tableau was more interesting to me because of the data orientation. I've always been very data-driven. Obviously, I went to Wharton, consider myself a kind of closet quant geek. And I've always said that data should help drive. It shouldn't make decisions for you, but it should be there to help you drive decisions and make them faster. And when I was in my marketing role, we had used Tableau. So I thought it was a phenomenal product and it is an amazing product. And so to me, that was a great opportunity. And then the person that I'm now working for Ryan A. Taves, president and CRO, you know, I had always admired. So I thought it was a good opportunity to go work with him and the team that he was building. You want to be able to work with really great people that you can learn from. And so to me, that was a too good of an opportunity to pass up. I certainly wasn't the only candidate for it. You know, it wasn't like they assigned me the job. I had to go through the process like everybody else, but I was lucky enough to come out the back end of that with that job in hand. That's amazing. I would like to ask you now about a Tableau. What was the main reason for the purchase of Tableau by Salesforce? So the world is awash in data, and I don't even know anymore how many terabytes a second of data is getting generated across every industry, country, market segmentation. And Salesforce is like the key customer data center of gravity in the world, the number one CRM or number one in every category we're in. So whether it's marketing, service, sales cloud, data, platform, we have an ocean of it. We didn't have a way to visualize that and do deep discovery to drive kind of best decision-making. And Tableau was best-in-class product and still is today. And so I think it was just a strategic 
opportunity to take the world's best visualization engine and apply it to the world's most comprehensive set of customer data. It's just, it's a very synergistic acquisition. That's the biggest reason we did it. Salesforce also, like any other company, specifically technology company, when you get to a certain size of revenue, I mean, we're at 30 billion, acquisitions should be one of two things. They should either be something that's very material in terms of technology, like IP, or they should provide you big step function growth in terms of revenue and new market penetration. Because at $30 billion, if you buy a company doing $100 million a year, it's in the noise. And so Tableau was a multi-billion dollar revenue company at the time. And so it, it provided that opportunity to drive new revenue streams and new growth engines for the company. Yeah. And could you share more about Tableau's mission? Yes. Tableau's mission has been to help people see and understand data. And what's interesting is we're in, I'd say, a bit of a transition state with Tableau as part of Salesforce. That still is a very strong piece of our mission. But we need to move to the next generation and evolve. Like Everything needs to evolve. And what we need to evolve to is a decision-making engine for the C-suite. And Tableau has very traditionally been for you know analysts and analyst teams and it's your hip pocket data scientist. It is still very much those things and will continue to be. But we also need to evolve to the point where if you're a C-level executive like myself, you can very quickly get to answers that you need to help drive next best action, whether it's in sales, service, marketing, or whatever, or customer service, without having to go and tap analysts on the shoulder and ask them what they think. For me, that's kind of the next evolution of Tableau that we're kind of working through now. That's an excellent segue because I know you were introduced to us through your connection with Mary Perk, who's the managing director of Wharton's AI for Business and Wharton Customer Analytics Center. So definitely in the realm of data. And, you know, as you know, with these centers, Wharton's also expanding AI and analytics research and reach to, you know, be it alumni, students, industry with hands-on programming. And from your perspective, as you think about AI as well, what can students and industry professionals do to continue to increase their AI and data literacy, as well as make an impact on responsible AI? Uh, if I could break those into parts, I think what someone in my position can do is different than a student. Someone in my position or someone who leads large teams needs to really spend a material amount of their time and energy to understand what the world of AI means, what does machine learning mean, what does natural language processing mean, because it's a muscle that you need to have, because that's where the world is going. And this may be a dumb analogy, but if you go back 25 years, you were a senior executive 25 years ago, you maybe didn't know how the internet worked, right? <laughs> but you need to understand how the internet works, right, 25, 30 years ago, because that's where the world is going. So if you've got some years under your belt, you've got to really spend the time. And it doesn't matter what industry you're in, manufacturing, food processing, it just doesn't matter, entertainment. You've really got to understand how AI can help you drive your business because that will be what helps create competitive advantage. Because there are going to be people out there who don't do that. If I think about that cohort, that's an answer to that question. I think if you're a student, whether it's an undergrad or MBA or whatever, PhD, I think you need to think about how not only does AI help you, how do you influence where AI is going? The state of the career I'm in, I'm going to be a user of AI-driven capabilities. I'm not going to influence where they go, really. That's just not where I am in the state of my career. But if you're in the beginning of your career, you shouldn't just be a student of AI and a practitioner. You should also start to shape how it's best utilized, which kind of leads, I guess, to my third cohort or your third part of your question, which was responsible. AI is like any other technology. It can do a lot of good, but if it's not designed the right way, 
and not managed and governed the right way, then it can result in some bad things. It inherently is not good or bad. It's just really how it's managed and developed. And so if I circle that all, all those things back together, everyone needs to understand how AI is utilized and what its potential is for both good and bad. And then that's what should help govern the responsible use of AI as technology. Yeah. And I just wanted to dive a little deeper there. In your mind, what is the biggest hurdle that companies will need to overcome, say, in the next two to three years with regard to having more trustworthy AI and making sure, you know, it's a lot more responsible and it's user friendly in that sense? Yeah. Well, the first thing is too many companies are still way too entrenched in how they did business five years ago. And that's certainly been an opportunity for material growth for Salesforce because we've kind of leveraged into the, all those different segments and industries with our different technologies and help them transform their business. That's something we're very, very good at. So, you know, my first kind of comment is companies need to actually, I don't know the numbers, I'm going to go on a limb and say the majority of companies out there don't have any kind of AA capability at all. So the first thing is, if I tie it back to your last set of questions, is get educated, right? What is it? What can it do? It's not just what you see in Hollywood, right? It's not about robots. It's about decision-making. So that's the first thing. I think to double-click into how you become more responsible with it, I think spending time and energy talking with people who do understand AI as a capability about what the end state would be if you want to use it to invest in genome research, right? How do you frame it? And I'm not by any way, shape, or form in that space. I'm just, so I'm kind of out of my comfort zone now, but it just popped in my head. So if you're going to be in the genome space, I imagine there's things you can do with genome therapies that could be considered bad, right? Either ethically or legally or whatever. As before you even embark on that journey, you should understand the implications of what you're doing. And you should, you know, I don't know, come up with some sort of governance agreement or guideline that says, here's the things that we're going to do and here's the things we're not going to do. You know, I'm generally not a fan of government involving itself too deeply in things like research other than funding. But you do need kind of an unbiased arbiter, for lack of a better term, to help kind of provide guidelines on what can and can't be done in a certain space. That's something we're all going to have to go figure out. I mean, AI is still incredibly new. The potential and applications are completely unseen at this point. So we're going to have to grow our way there. But I think people need to have this governance mindset of what it can do and it can't do. And if I think about social media, and I'm going to apologize to anybody who works in the social media space. You know, we've gotten to a point, in my personal opinion, where it seems to me it's more harm than good. And if you went back 20 years, I was at Wharton when Facebook kind of exploded and we all jumped in. And back then it was a lot more innocuous and less harmful than it is today, certainly less influential. If they had created a set of guidelines that said, here are the things we were going to allow and not allow to happen on the platform. And here's where we're not going to allow our platform to be utilized for and made that very clear up front, as opposed to trying to figure it out as they went, I think we would have been in a lot better space. That said, as I mentioned earlier, we don't know what we don't know. So there's a lot, I think going in with an open mind, open our eyes to understand that like any other technology, there's a downside along with an upside. And so just being very intelligent and thoughtful about how we use and how we create capabilities surrounding that technology is really important. Those are very interesting points. And I think that it is also a responsibility for businesses to be leading governance discussions because as we saw, maybe government is not as knowledgeable as businesses that are day-to-day -day working with AI, with regulation. So I think it's very important for companies to be able to 
participate in the process, lead the process and make governance something that makes AI better for everyone. Yeah. What I would say too, just to add on to that is you shouldn't wait for someone to tell you to do that. Like if you are about to embark on a AI journey, you need to start that journey thinking through how you're going to utilize the technology and what the end state's going to be. And if you're waiting around for someone to tell you what the right guidelines are, you're probably making a mistake. So you really can't wait for that. You've got to be proactive and very thoughtful about your approach. I wanted to ask you about AI in Tableau in particular. Can you provide specific examples of how you have used AI in Tableau? Yeah. So if I think about it in terms of the maturation of how, like, let's just talk about my own personal day. So pre-Tableau, if I wanted to understand how a sales division was performing in a certain region, I would get that. I would say what our revenue was and what our pipe was and whatever performance against a metric. So if we are, want our pipe growth to be 20%, if we're at 17%, the system would tell me that. Very static, right? It was like a billboard. It would tell me what was happening. But then from that point forward, it was all on my own. With Tableau, you're provided a set of much more deep discovery, rich discovery capabilities where I can, okay, if we're down in a certain region, I can start to understand why. Is it based on a segment? Is it based on a product? Is it based on a sales team? Are they not enabled enough, right? You can go all the way down and understand hundreds to thousands of different factors that can influence the performance of a certain cohort. And you can double click into that and all that. That's all great. But it's still at the end, where we are today is it's not providing me the next best action. I kind of got to figure that out on my own, which isn't a terrible thing, but there's so much going on in anybody's given career job, mine especially. I've got a billion different things I have to go take care of that every minute I spend trying to do discovery on my own is a minute not spend solving problems or not spending with a customer or with an employee. And so where AI is starting to take us now is what we just recently announced last summer was this thing called data stories, where now what the AI is doing is it's actually reading the data along with me, following what I'm doing, and then giving me in natural language processing a paragraph, for lack of a better term, that says, hey, Sam, I see that you're looking at your sales performance. Please take a look at the sales adoption rate, widget A in region B, and you'll find that it highly correlates with poor performance of that overall picture. That simple thing saves me a huge amount of time it also gives me a very definitive thing I can go point to. I can go directly to that product manager. I can go directly to that sales leader and understand exactly why we're not performing to the level we should be in that given example. And that's where AI is really going to start to help driving us in, from a Tableau perspective on it's not just about deep visualization and discovery. And again, that hip pocket data scientist, it's also telling me right when I click into it in a natural language sort of way, Hey, Sam, here's where you should go focus and spend your time. And we're just kind of scratching the surface on that. So that's the best example I can give you of kind of where right now we are looking at in terms of evolution of the platform. That's fascinating, you know, and it really is a game changer in many ways, right? Because now you're moving from just looking at data to the platform can almost coach you into where should you go next, depending on what's been done. So data story sounds immensely powerful. And I'd love to understand, you know, are you thinking about similar applications as well? Or how would the integration of AI into Tableau applications, how can this really be a game changer? So you gave us one example, but 
Is that how you're thinking about applying AI into Tableau? Well, actually, let me turn that around a little bit. I'm not thinking about kind of what's next in AI for Tableau. What I'm actually thinking about is, so if you ever see a Salesforce presentation, you'll see this thing called the Customer 360. So there's a customer in the center and around the customer, all our capabilities, sales cloud, service cloud, platform, Slack, MuleSoft, whatever. And we talk about trust that underpins that and all that. Right now, Tableau is another kind of spot on that ring. But to me, the evolution is Tableau lights up each and every one of those other clouds with discovery, right? And with that AI capability. So that's, to me, is the important kind of evolution inside of Salesforce. And that's something we're obviously working on. And we are integrated with components of Salesforce, not completely yet. But to me, that's the next kind of short horizon evolution for Tableau as part of Salesforce is. I think of us more, if you flip that framework, that's a circle on its side. And look at it from a stacked perspective. Each one of those things is a pillar, sales cloud, service cloud, and so on. Tableau should be a platform beneath all of those pillars that lights up all those pillars. So when you go and implement sales cloud for your sales team or service cloud for your field service agents, that Tableau provides that capability, that deep data discovery, the narrative, the data stories that allows a service manager who's managing a fleet of trucks to understand how they can better perform in their business. So that to me is the kind of next short horizon for Tableau as part of Salesforce. Yeah, and it's great to hear there's so many opportunities and so many different ways in which, you know, Tableau can grow in the next coming months. And I'm just curious, are there any challenges that you're currently facing or that you're really excited to work on, say, in the next 18 to 24 months? Yeah, I've got more challenges than we have time to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) And I try to bucket things. I tell this to myself. I tell it to my team. I tell it to my kids. There are things that you can control and there are things that you can't. And if you spend time on things you can't control and worry about things you can't control, then you're failing, frankly, in your job. There's a lot of problems out there. What I'm going to try and solve are the ones that I can manage. The first one for me is I think about what I just talked about to tie it back to my last set of answers around Tableau as a more deeply integrated component of the Salesforce architecture, there's a lot of decisions we have to make. Like, which part of that do we go for first, right? And so we're working with our product partners to go figure that out. To me, that's problem number one. It's like an embarrassment of riches, but you've got to be very careful about where you invest your time and energy. And you should use a set of whatever business metrics work for you. You know, what's going to drive the most adoption in the highest, biggest market and drive the most revenue, obviously, is something that we look at. That's kind of the first set of challenges that we have. The second one is really, if I think about it through a distribution or sales lens, is how do we continue to be a very material growth engine for Salesforce? And right now we have a dedicated, pure dedicated sales organization for Tableau as part of the broader Salesforce engine. And we need to drive a better connective tissue with the Salesforce. There's 10,000 Salesforce sellers in the world. So how do I enable them to have Tableau as top of mind every time they walk into a sales cycle? Some of them do that great right now, but not all of them do. So that's a very big challenge for us. So we're responsible for our own growth. And we're going to drive that. And we're very linked in with the sales. Like we're an operating unit in Salesforce. So we're very deeply integrated with marketing and all that kind of stuff, which is good. But at the end of the day, from a sales cycle perspective, we control our own sales cycle. And we've got to get more integrated with the what we call core, Salesforce core sales engine. That's going to be kind of the next set of challenges as I think think of them. I guess the last one is, you know, just typical workforce management. You know, we're evolving. Most of my career was a 
Monday to Friday, 8 a.m. Monday to 6 p.m. Friday work week in the office. You know, COVID set that on its head. And now we're trying to figure out how do you get back to a collaborative, productive work environment that is some sort of hybrid of what it used to be versus pure virtual. And you have different cohorts of employees. You have employees who graduated college three years ago, and this is all they've known, right? And you got people like me who spent 25 years in an office are now trying to figure out how to lead large organizations without ever physically being in the same room with people. And so that's a pretty material challenge we're still working through and don't have an answer for you. That's a very interesting thing, a challenge for a lot of companies, I think, that all the companies are trying to see what will the new normality look like because we had a way of working, but we also showed that we could work virtually, right? So now what's the balance? I think that's a question that will be decided in a case-by-case basis. Yeah, and I think for me, the hard thing to separate is people can be productive in their home or you know, virtually wherever they choose to be. And I certainly can count myself in that category. But when it comes to like deep collaboration and teaming, really hard to do that virtually. So yes, while an individual can be very productive at home, I don't find that large teams can be as productive if they're all virtual. And so that's the thing that we're really challenged with. That's the challenge. And that's the thing we need to figure out how to balance everything and how to collaborate in person, right? I think that's a challenge for all the companies at this point as we look for the future. Sam, I wanted to switch gears and ask you some questions unrelated to Tableau and and Salesforce. What leadership advice would you give to young professionals who want to build a career in tech? Leadership advice for young professionals who want to build a career in tech. The first thing I would say is have a very open mind to what the opportunities are. You know, you might come out and say, oh, I'm going to work in the cloud software space because that's where I think the world is going. And if you do that, I'm going to give you both sides of this answer. You can do that and it helps you drive focus and really refine set of career opportunities. It's walling off a lot of other things that you might not know have an advantage. You might miss out on the financial tech space as an example, or fintech. So my first piece of advice is have a very open mind about what there is in the technology sector. There is so much out there. You know, if I think about just marketing technology, on last count, there are something like 7,500 MarTech vendors, all of them venture back. And then there's big ones like we're considered a MarTech because we have a huge multi-billion dollar marketing cloud. You know, there's such a wide universe of opportunity out there. I think the second thing I would say is think through what your role to be. And there's obviously kind of two categories. There's the specialist and the generalist. And if you're a specialist, it means I'm going to be a product marketer for my entire career. And you're going to be a you know, image contributor and then a manager and a senior manager and director and a vice president and on and on and on. And that's a fantastic career. You could do 30, 40 years in the tech space, bouncing amongst different companies as a product marketer. But my advice to people is generally, you need to go spend some time doing something outside of your comfort zone. One, it helps you grow as a person. Two, when you get to the level I'm at, your depth of knowledge is less critical than your expanse of knowledge. And you've got to really understand all the different components of business because I spend my time with executive peers solving problems. And if I don't understand how finance works or how engineering works or how product development works, then I'm not as useful at that table or virtual table as I would be otherwise. And so the other piece of advice I have is in your career, you need to think about doing a three-year or a four-year you know, out-of-your-comfort-zone job. So if you're going to be a product marketer for the rest of your career, maybe 
halfway through that or 10 years into that, you go take a job in product development or in communications or something like that to really help build out your muscle and round you out a little bit. And the last thing I'll say specifically related to the technology sector is it changes so fast. Like when I entered technology, I worked at you know two of the premier companies. The first one was Northern Telecom. The second was Cisco Systems. They were both in telecom hardware. And nobody, quote unquote, wants to work in telecom hardware anymore, right? Even though those are, Nortel's gone, but Cisco is still a blue ribbon, phenomenal company. But you don't find people coming out of masters of science programs saying, oh, I'm going to go work on telecom hardware, right? So you've got to recognize where the technology space is going. So I consider myself a technologist, not a software, hardware, or whatever. And I can say that with confidence because I've been in the consumer space, I've been in the hardware space, I've been in the software space, I've been in cloud. And so I can kind of take on any role in any technology sector. But I've also been able to see, pay attention to what's going on around me and know that back in 2004, with coming out of social media with the advent of iPhone, you know, and everything that came with that, that maybe hardware wasn't the right place to be. And that's a personal decision. And so I knew at that point that I needed to switch it up. And so making sure that you're constantly diligent or vigilant, I should say, about where the tech sector is going and try and be on the leading edge of those changes. And that will provide a pretty phenomenal career. That's great advice. Sam, you have also been part of the advisory council for the Wharton Entrepreneurs Program for many years. What is the biggest challenge you believe entrepreneurs face and what advice would you give them? I think the biggest challenge I've seen from entrepreneurs is they chase too many opportunities. So you've got to have a lot of focus and you need to be very, I shouldn't say rigid, you need to be very disciplined in your prioritization. And a term I use all the time in business and the people who work for me here at all the time is triage. Like what's the most important thing right now? And I've seen too many entrepreneurs develop a technology or a product that has a use case they originally designed it for, that then has a secondary use case they didn't realize. Like, oh my God, I can double my business if I go after that secondary use case. But to double your business means you have to quadruple your spend, as an example, and you have to split yourself in half. And that's really hard to do for a startup. I'm thinking sub-series B, 25, 50, even 100 people. The best companies I've seen in the 25 years I've been in, in Silicon Valley that are startups are ones that stay very focused on their original mission. Now, there's this you know famous term called pivot. That happens too, right? Where, okay, this visual idea isn't working. We have an amazing capability built. Let's pivot and go after something else. But the pivots that have worked, like Airbnb is a famous one, that pivot worked because when they pivoted, they didn't keep focusing on the stuff that didn't work before. They shed that, right? And so I think that kind of maniacal focus on what you need to go achieve is really important because if you start chasing a bunch of stuff, then you just end up you just not have the resources to do that. So be maniacal in how you approach the problem you're trying to solve and be very disciplined about prioritization. The second thing I'll say is I don't know how many conversations I've had with entrepreneurs that come in and talk to me about in a bragging kind of way about how they're quote unquote profitable already, or they've got two years of runway, people aren't investing in you to sit on cash. People are investing in you to grow. And every single successful technology company is on a very material growth curve. If you're trying to conserve dollars, you should always be prudent. But if you're trying to conserve dollars and not invest in the growth of your business, you're making a mistake. Because if you invest in growth, and then you grow, more money is going to be available. Money has never been a problem, even in any downturn, including today. Like if you've got a good idea and a good team, 
and you show traction in the market, you'll get the funding you need. So spend the dollars that we're investing in you to go drive growth. Sam, thanks for those great insights. We'd love to now pivot and ask you a couple of questions, rapid fire style. What advice would you give your younger self? Actually, the advice I give my younger self is what I just said a moment ago, and that's how I learned it, was, you know, hope an open mind. I would tell myself, don't be afraid to walk through an open door and never turn down the opportunity to have a conversation with somebody. There were people that I didn't speak to when I was coming out and just starting my civilian career. They weren't of value, and that was a mistake. Like, you should never turn down a conversation with anybody because they might know somebody. They're going to tell you something that might trigger a thought in your head. They might know somebody who can help you in a job interview. And if nothing else, you need to work on your craft of conversing, right, and driving conversation. To me, those are the two biggest things. Don't ignore an open door and don't skip a conversation that you can have. I'm so glad you decided to go ahead with this conversation we are having right now. <laughs> well, don't forget triage. You got to prioritize. Yeah, yeah, that too. That too. You were actually granted the Top Gun Award during your time at the military. I'm curious, what did you think of the most recent Top Gun film? Well, uh, it's funny you bring that up. So I got a Top Gun Award. It was nothing related to aviation or flying. <laughs> it was for a trained exercise. I led an assault unit that completely wiped out the enemy. Anyway. There was a lot of just leadership and aggressiveness in that award that I'm very proud of. Got it around here somewhere. I just moved, so I'm not sure where it is. The, I haven't actually seen the latest Top Gun. Obviously, I was in high school when the first one came out. As a veteran, it's hard sometimes to go to these movies. There is so much that is wrong in those movies right. that creates bias in the minds of people who weren't in the military. From what I understand from my veteran friends, that's not the case with the Top Gun movie, but I just haven't had a chance to see it yet. My kids have seen it multiple times. So I heard it's pretty good. I agree. It's pretty good. I haven't seen the first one, though. I think I will do it. Well, I made my sons watch the first one before they're allowed to go see the second one. Because the second one was great. Well, the first one was great. Did he like it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Do you have any hidden talents? Do I have any hidden talents? Oh, I would say this is hidden. If I had a dream job, it'd probably be to be a writer. I'm a really good writer and enjoy it as a craft. But like any other craft, it takes a lot of focus and energy. And the type of job I have and two teenage boys, I just don't have the time or the energy to kind of invest in it the way I would like to. But I think that would be the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is I'm a pretty good karaoke singer. If people who know me don't believe it because they think of me as a bit more, they can't imagine me up on a stage, but I enjoy it quite a bit. What's a recent book you read that you would recommend to our listeners? Recent book that I read... That's a really good question. The last couple of books I read, oh, you know, actually kind of tying this back to AI conversation. This is actually interesting. So I read a book two years ago called Weapons of Math Destruction. And it was about bias built into AI and machine learning and all that. And I had heard that as an anecdote and thought, well, it's AI. How can it be biased? You know, it's just data. But that book really kind of opened my eyes on, it's written by a PhD in mathematics an AI practitioner, and basically she broke down many different examples of how bias has been built in, not through intention, but just because the data has created an environment where decisions get made. The most salient example I can think of is around mortgages, right? So if you live in a certain zip code, you pay a higher mortgage rate than I do. And it's only based on things like you know education and crime and all that. That's not really a fair way to apply it to a single person, right? And the intent of that mortgage decision-making, whatever it was, was not to be biased, but that was the result. And so anybody who wants to understand AI should read. There's a several other books that are written that are similar to that one. 
I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the author, but it was a really fantastic book and I've recommended it quite a bit. Awesome. It's been a great conversation and it's time for our final question. Are you ready? Yeah, go ahead. What is your boldest, most unique prediction that folks might feel is a moonshot in the AI space, but that you believe will happen in the next five to 10 years? Five to 10 years. I believe that AI is going to do two things that I don't know if these are moonshots or not. And actually, just along the theme of moonshot, I think one of them is going to be materially accelerate our ability to put human beings on Mars. And I've always been fascinated with space travel and NASA, and I grew up as a little kid, you know, loving it. And it's kind of a passion of mine. I believe that AI is going to allow us to really drive, accelerate, I should say, that mission. I think that's one of them. I think the second one, and I can't get real specific because I just don't know, but my feeling is that in the healthcare space, what we're able to do with research around, you know, COVID was a perfect example of this, right? How fast we came up with a vaccine. Now, based on, I'm not a scientist, but what I understand, COVID was a very flu-like, and so there's always a flu vaccine, and so it was like this giant leap. But things like Alzheimer's, cancer, I think our ability to dramatically accelerate what we're doing there. I told my wife, I'm in my 50s, and she just turned 50, that we don't have to worry about Alzheimer's. That's a pretty bold statement. And I've had to, my, both my grandparents have had it, and it's a terrible, terrible affliction. But I honestly believe that. I honestly believe that our pace of discovery and the ability that AI will help scientists drive decision-making is going to so dramatically accelerate. They're already finding lots of new things. And then tying them with groundbreaking drugs, which are also utilizing AI capabilities. I think we're going to eradicate some of these things that had zero answer five years ago. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights. It's been great to hear about your role at Salesforce at Tableau, hear your thoughts on AI and also, you know, get to know a little bit more about you as a person. So thank you for making the time. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Let me say one last thing. I should have threaded this through some of my answers earlier. I think as a leader, it's incredibly important to be values driven. You should spend time like in a quiet room with no distractions, thinking about what the three or four values are that are most important to you and understand why. And then use that as a framework for how you make decisions. You know, so mine are integrity, moral courage, and dependability. And those are my guideposts. And so I just, as advice to people as they start to think through wherever they are in their career, kind of start there because you need to always have a solid foundation. So I think that's an important piece of my own learning I'd like to pass on. Thank you so much, Sam. 